Torrent Borealis Paradigm Expansion Greetings from the North to the citizens of the world and welcome to Forum Borealis. Today we continue our timeline from World War II, dwelling further on the Kennedy assassination, particular the Nazi angle, but also even more obscure elements. To help us with this, we have historian Peter Levanderback, the genuine investigative and primary researcher who's a leading expert on the Nazi phenomenon as well as the occult. In the course of his more than 25 years of field research, he has journeyed to more than 40 countries, gaining access to all sorts of obscure places, like archives, libraries, temples, prisons, military installation and government documents, interviewing historic persons, obtaining primary sources and making new discoveries. He has appeared in numerous documentaries, magazines, radio interviews, podcasts, etc., especially on matters concerning Nazis and esoterica. For his biography and full bibliography, visit the guest section of our website, where you'll also find links to all his. Although we will have programs with him on more exotic topics, tonight's show will return to the theme we've begun with him, taking on the post-war Nazi activities in relation to JFK, but overlapping with other areas, as you'll also hear about the weird renegade bishops the flying discs phenomenon, and the perhaps strangest element of all, called the Circle of Nine. All of this you can read about in his trilogy, Sinister Forces, especially book one, called The Nine, a grimoire of American political witchcraft, which constitutes the context of this discussion. Welcome back to the forum, Peter. Hello, and thank you very much. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, so happy to have you with us again, finally. Uh, Our previous interviews with you have been very popular, and uh, we've started to go through the origins of of the Nazi cult, and we took on Hitler's escape. Right. And... uh, just uh, just a few weeks ago, uh, I got uh, actually it was ordered uh, a few months ago, but it came to to my other address and I haven't picked it up yet. But I got your book about uh, the Nazi cult in diaspora, the third book about the Nazis. Right. So I'm going to read that. Uh, we're going to have you back for that to complete that timeline with you. But one could argue that there is material in between there. Uh, how do you mean? Um, well, because uh, you have taken on uh, JFK. That's correct, yes. So I was thinking today we could start with uh, kind of continuing from, from the end of the war and uh, upwards through 
the JFK era. Sure. And next time we take on the Nazis, then we can focus on your uh, Hitler legacy book. Sure, as you like. So, uh, first of all, because it's a huge mystery, why haven't you written on JFK? Why haven't I written on JFK? Yeah, you're the perfect author to write a book about the JFK uh, assassination. But you haven't, right? Well, I mean, I've written about him in Sinister Forces. There's a chapter in there. I talk about the the, the involvement of the weird churches around the Kennedy assassination, which I'm, for some reason, I was perfectly positioned to do because I knew the churches personally. Right. So I wrote about that. I wrote about the strange bishops, and I, I wrote about the the connection of the nine to the assassination, the Arthur Young, Andrea Pucharic, uh, you know, all that connection back to, to Oswald. Um, and, you know, and I, I also wrote about the involvement of Guy Bannister and Fred Crisman, who were in the UFO business in the 1940s, and then suddenly they were in the assassination business in the 60s. So mm. I, I did write about all of that in Sinister Forces, but I, I hesitated to just sort of jump in and add a whole new book to this huge library of, yeah, of yeah. speculation. You know, it's just let those guys who specialize in that do that. But my angle on it is, is a little idiosyncratic, but nonetheless, it's fully documented. It's just mm. one of those things. I mean, I've, I've tried to talk to people who have the annual uh, meeting in Dallas, you know, all the conspiracy people and all of that. They go and they give their presentations. They don't want to hear from me on this. Oh, it's a, it's very interesting. They simply ignore it, and I'm the guy who actually can sit there and prove this this information that nobody else talks about, that nobody else has. But for some reason, they just don't want to know about it. I haven't read the, that book with the JFK chapter, but I, I know about it. So, could it be that they don't want to see that there are even cosmic aspects to this because many of them are very focused on the human conspiracy, right? No, no, but that's what I'm doing. It, it, it's not a cosmic focus that I have. It is the human conspiracy. Ah. It's the names the dates the places the people it's not a um it's not a speculative you know sort of cosmic approach mm. i actually go there and say this is what ruth payne said in the warren commission and dulles was there and this is what he said and they were hiding the fact that they both knew you know one of the major players in the assassination and so i i go through that and i show i mean i have copies of jim garrison's file on this which talks about the churches you know and his frustration with the fact that he couldn't figure out what that was all about and then I have other documents from other people who were involved in the bishops in, in the churches, bishops who admitted yeah. what was going on. I mean, I'm full of this stuff, you know, and it's all documented <laughs> and nobody wants to know about it. <laughs> That's where we have to give that attention. But what about the Nazi connections to the JFK case? That you haven't touched, have you? Uh, well, well, yes and no. I mean, the Nazi uh, stuff is there, obviously, because of if nothing else, Bell Aerospace, Walter Dornberger, Michael Payne, who worked at Bell Aerospace, Arthur Young, mm. the creator of the Bell Helicopter. And it goes back to that same crew. You know, it all goes back to that same group of people. And I'm, I'm going to be addressing that in a bit more detail in a project that I'm working on right now, which is going to be uh, disseminated uh, later on this year. Mm. So it's, uh, it, it really goes into the nuts and bolts of the 1940s, the, the immediate post-war period, right. and the involvement of the paperclip uh, generals and, you know, uh, other things around that, the Rosenberg case, and et cetera, et cetera, and Jack Parsons and his rockets. And so th there's a connection with all of that, a very deep 
uh, one that I think I've uncovered, and mm. that'll be discovered more, uh, you know, discussed more uh, later on in the year when I'm ready to publish. Okay, so let's uh, let's start with uh, the obvious question: uh, is uh, when we are dealing with the JFK, the obvious question is who did it? <laughs> sure, <laughs> and and you're you're aware of Joseph's uh, perspective on this, right? Uh, Joseph Farrell, yes, yeah, yes, I am. So, what's yours? Well, I don't have a who did it. Um, I was very careful in Sinister Forces to say, listen, I'm not going to wade into all of the speculation concerning the assassination uh, and try to figure out if there was a, a gunman on the grassy knoll or any of that. My approach to the subject was was a little different, and it stemmed from some personal contact I had when I was growing up in the Bronx in the 1960s, which seems totally uh, counterintuitive when you're talking about the Kennedy assassination, which took place in Dallas, Texas. Mm. Um, but there is a definite connection. There is something that um, came to my attention a number of years ago when I started to really look at the Warren Commission report in detail and saw names that should not have been there as far as I was concerned. And it, it started, it triggered a whole series of, of research areas that I became involved in, and all of that eventually became sinister forces. But there is one particular aspect of the assassination that virtually everyone, and I mean everyone, has ignored. Mm -hmm. I mean, there is nothing else in print. And I'm not saying this just to promote my book. You have to understand that mm -hmm. I am sort of shocked at the fact that other historians have not addressed this this particular aspect of the assassination. And that is something that bothered Jim Garrison mm -hmm. uh, very deeply when he was researching the assassination himself in the 1960s uh, during the Clay Shaw uh, trial. So I was amazed when I saw Garrison's files when they later became available and I matched them with everything else I was working on. And obviously there is a connection to an underground, a kind of demi-monde of religious characters mm. there's really no other way to describe them mm. they were not genuinely religious leaders but they posed as religious leaders they pretended to be bishops in churches that for all practical intents and purposes did not exist that, that's the same thing as exile nazis did exactly to have a cover it was a cover right yeah. and, and that's typical spooks uh, craft isn't it well, it is. And the area of the, the, the intelligence operation that's never been really looked at is, I mean, it has been mentioned. It was mentioned during the famous uh, hearings they had in the 1970s on CIA and what they were involved in and all of the other uh, committees that were designed to figure it out. It's a footnote, mm. basically. And the footnote is, well, yes, there were some churches, and the, the CIA did use churches, and they used some churches as fronts, um, but it was it, the, the, the approach to that, that material was rather hit and miss. I mean, they really didn't delve into it very deeply. Garrison brought it up to the attention of the House Committee on the Assassinations in the 70s, and he has a letter, which I have, uh, I have a copy of it, obviously, in which Garrison tells the committee, you know, look into these churches. I don't know what they mean. I don't know what their, their relevance is, but they're all over the place on this. Hmm. And I, I, I was amused by this and also a little saddened that I, I didn't know Jim Garrison, and I, I could have told him what, what the connection was. Oh. But nobody else knew either. Nobody else was paying attention. Right. And so I'll get back to this a little bit uh, and give you some background. Yeah. About 100 years ago, there was a kind of weird movement in North America 
around the world too, but really a lot in North America, of people who had broken away from the Eastern Orthodox churches on the one hand, the Russian Orthodox Church, the Greek and the Syrian Orthodox Churches. These were people who had broken away. Uh, they had been sent maybe as missionaries to Canada or to other places, or perhaps in the United States, and uh, they were isolated from their mother church, and they eventually got a little weird. Um, we had certain bishops in, in Canada and the United States who then formed their own religious denominations. So, so we're talking the late 19th century, early beginning of the 1900s. Yes, that's correct. But this dovetails with the, 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 all the wild uh, renegade Gnostic bishop lineages. Is there a connection here? Or? Uh, absolutely, of course. Okay. Uh, exactly. I mean, this is all part of the same phenomenon. Mm. So they set up these churches, and they were probably very genuine at the time. These were people who genuinely wanted to you know, spread the gospel and do missionary work and all of this. But because of their isolation— uh, they got involved with other bishops who have similar backgrounds, and pretty soon they're forming their own churches, they're consecrating each other. And you have to understand that within the context of both the Catholic and the Orthodox churches, the consecration of a bishop is an extremely legalistic process. You have to have generally three bishops involved in consecrating a fourth, right. uh, at the very least two bishops consecrating a third. Uh, which is a different kind of status of bishop. So, and those bishops have to prove that they are genuine bishops. They're going back with a lineage and, and stuff. It's called apostolic succession, and right. you have to prove that. Mm. So, the problem was that not all of these bishops were secure in the fact that they had that apostolic succession. So, they would go and get re consecrated by other bishops. Mm. And this started to mushroom into this, basically a diploma mill, or a bishop's mill, <laughs> as they called it. Like, like a bureaucratic competition in who, who oh, had oh, the most genuine lineages. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you, you never find a bishop in this, in this world who doesn't have multiple consecrations to his name, right. because he's always afraid he doesn't have a real one, so he goes and gets another. Mm. So the Orthodox churches started to multiply this way, with little strange, weird churches that never had very much in the way of actual parishioners, that wasn't important. What was important were these documents that said they were real bishops. Mm. And then the Catholics had a similar situation. The Dutch church, the Jansenists, uh, split off from the Catholic church. I won't go into all the history, it's very complex, yeah. but you had actual Catholic bishops with verifiable, genuine apostolic succession who had broken off from the Catholic church, were now autonomous, were now doing their own thing, and they were consecrating other bishops, and then that created an entire movement as well called the Old Roman Catholic Movement. So you had the Old Roman Catholic Church and various branches of it, which then led into the Liberal Catholic Church, which was part of the Theosophical Movement. Yeah, I've heard about that one. Yeah, and then you had all the Orthodox churches, which proliferated like mushrooms after the rain. So you had churches growing up everywhere, sprouting everywhere. Um, sometimes they were just vehicles for the ego of whoever was involved. <laughs> yeah. These people were not theologically trained. These people had no parishioners. They probably had very little understanding of the rituals, of the mass, of the divine liturgy, of anything. Mm. They were interested in the, in the, in the crowns, the mitres, they were interested in the clothing, they were interested in having big rings with amethysts and saying they were bishops, even though there was no church, not even a chapel in most cases. They were operating out of their apartments. In one case, there was a building superintendent operating out of his basement, and he considered himself the patriarch of this church and that church and the other church. It was all in his imagination. Uh, in other cases, you had convicted 
you know, criminals. You had ex-cons who were bishops um, running all sorts of scams. And this started to coalesce around the Kennedy assassination, believe it or not. And Garrison is starting to interrogate people, including David Ferry and Jack Martin, that he, he was not aware, uh, from what I can find in the files, for instance, that Jack Martin was one of those bishops. In fact, he stayed a bishop until the end of his life. He was consecrating other bishops. There are bishops today in the world who have their apostolic succession through Jack Martin, one of the you know co-conspirators in the Kennedy assassination, according to Jim Garrison, right? Mm-hmm. I met bishops who knew him. We discussed Jack Martin at length. I have some of that on tape. And this was a guy that you went to if you wanted to find out if you're a candidate for priesthood or or or, or bishop, uh, the episcopacy had a criminal background, had any kind of you know unsavory stuff in his past. You went to Jack Martin, and Jack Martin would find that out for you, which is incredible when you think of it, because Jack Martin has been portrayed as this sort of useless drunk in in the movie, the Oliver Stone film JFK. He was portrayed by Jack Lemmon as this oh. guy who was kind of a wimpy guy who got beaten up by Guy Bannister after the assassination. Yeah, I remember who you mean now. Mm. Yeah, that was Jack Lemmon. And David Ferry was, you know, the guy played by Joe Pesci, mm. right? Uh, David Ferry was the guy with the wild uh, red-haired wig and the, you know, the, the, the fake eyebrows pasted on, who was uh, totally manic over the case of the assassination in the film. That's who he was played by. David Ferry was one of those bishops. David Ferry, Jack Martin, uh, Tommy Jude Baumler, uh, one of the lawyers out of the uh, operating, an investigator operating out of Guy Bannister's office, was also uh, one of these bishops. And it just went on and on and on. And Garrison is saying, who are these people? Well, therein lies a tale. Uh, Back in 1968, uh, I was 17-years-old, going to be 18 that year, I came across something called the American Orthodox Catholic Church which was housed in a beautiful little building in the Bronx, uh, very close to the Bronx Zoo. For those of you... Because the Bronx is traditionally uh, a Catholic and Orthodox area when it comes to people's Christian denomination? Well, yeah, it's, pri- it's primarily Christian. I mean, it's, there, there's a large Jewish... I mean, it depends upon which neighborhood you are. The Bronx yeah. is, is the size of many American cities just by itself. Okay. So it depends where you are in the Bronx. But this particular area... Yeah, I'm, I'm guessing the blacks are, are Protestants and the Jews are Jews, right? So I'm talking about the Christians are, are basically not the evangelist Christians, but the Catholics or the Orthodox. Well, we're talking now 1968. So we're going back quite, quite far, uh, according to today's standards. Mm. You had neighborhoods that were Hispanic. Right. So these were prominently Catholic. Mm. Uh, you had a large Italian uh, neighborhood not very far from that church on Arthur Avenue. It's still there. It's a it's a great place for Italian food, by the way. Uh, probably the best pizza in, in all of uh, New York City is up in Arthur Avenue. I've heard about that, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the pizza. So you have this very strong Catholic. It's a largely a Catholic area for the most part. Okay. And, or it was then. and uh, But this is an Orthodox church. Um, and it's, it had the, the Russian crosses with the three-armed cross, all of this very orthodox appearance, mm. and a beautiful house, like a rectory that was attached to this church, but there were no parishioners, right? Mm. Uh, there was, they had services on Sunday by themselves, basically. There was nobody in the pews. There was nobody actually in the churches. But they bothered to, uh, to conduct it. Well, this is the, this is the point. Um, it was created by a man called Walter Profeta, or Vladimir Profeta. Mm-hmm. He was a Ukrainian priest. 
Uh, he had started as Ukrainian Orthodox, very anti-communist, very famous for being anti-communist, um, very well known for that. It was on television interviews and stuff, talking about the evils of Soviet communism. Mm. And he broke off, in a sense, from the Ukrainian church and formed his own church, the American Orthodox Catholic Church. And this was, as I found out later, basically a front for American intelligence operations. Right. Okay, he used to brag that he had one CIA agent and one FBI agent on his board of directors. <laughs> and he was proud of that fact. He showed me once a letter he received from Dewey, who was running against Truman for the election, a Republican candidate for president. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, Dewey, uh, Truman had taken over when Roosevelt had died right. uh, and then ran for president himself against Dewey in 48. Um, everyone thought Dewey was going to win. The letter that Profeta had that he showed to me was naming Profeta the White House chaplain should Dewey win the election. Wow. This is how connected this guy was. Mm. And he was Orthodox. He was a Ukrainian. He wasn't Catholic. He wasn't evangelical. He wasn't Protestant of any kind. This was just this bizarre little offshoot. But he ran, Profeta, ran New Jersey politics and was going to be able to deliver the state of New Jersey for Dewey. Right. Um, so this was part of what was going on. This was the background of this guy. Mm. Well, Jack Martin belonged to that church. David Ferry belonged to that church. Uh, a guy called Carl Stanley. All these people that, whose names turn up in the assassination investigation, not just by Jim Garrison, but by the House Committee and by the Warren Commission, the FBI investigation of the assassination also. So their, their fingerprints are all over the place. Though. All over. Mm. They're all over the place completely. Mm. So they're all over the place in this church. And I'm there in 1968 at the time Garrison is investigating Clay Shaw. I'm now involved with this church. I'm going there every Sunday. Uh, I'm, I'm going uh, during the week, uh, raising money for this church, which was kind and of... And I heard it was because to get out of the draft or something? Well, that's a, yeah, if you want to go into that, it's a very long story. Well, we don't have to today. But it, it does involve... I wasn't involved with that church to get out of the draft. What happened was a friend of mine and I, uh, high school classmates, uh, he was Czech and Slovak background. His his uh, grandmother came from uh, the Czech Republic, and he, his mother was Slovak. I my father was Slovak, so we had this sort of Eastern oh. European connection. Right. So uh, we developed a friendship in high school. Neither of us wanted to go to Vietnam. We didn't believe in in that uh, conflict at all. No, of that, not to say that we were not patriotic, but Vietnam to us seemed like just absolutely the worst idea ever invented. Oh, yeah. And. Uh, you know, we're thinking, well, we can go to college. There was the college deferment, but I couldn't afford to go to college. My friend just did not have the intellectual chops to have survived in college for very long uh, or even to get accepted. So we had these issues, and uh, it came to me. I mean, I came up with the idea at one point, looking through all the various deferments, including the 4F, which meant you were physically incapable. Yeah. Uh, there was another one. There was called the, the 4D deferment, and that was the clerical deferment religious exemption and a religious exemption if wow. not not the conscientious objector oh but the actual deferment for a priest so it's a subcategory because they are too valuable to be canon fodder so right so they are exempt for that reason then i guess uh, i guess so whatever the reason was but there <laughs> it was there was the exemption clever clever i, I knew that <laughs> so the, the two of us were only 17 years old wow. you know neither of us wanted to go to a seminary <laughs> which to us was the same as boot camp like what's the difference <laughs> yeah. so my my idea was well you know anybody in the united states can incorporate a church right and that that light bulb went on and we said well that's what we'll do then we'll 
we'll create a church, we'll incorporate it, and we'll name ourselves the priests. That's so brilliant, because obviously it wasn't a common way out. No, it was not. <laughs> Should be, but... Uh, <laughs> I think we invented it. <laughs> That's very brilliant. I don't know anything else. Uh, we just, we, you know, it was something that we, we felt we had to do. Yeah. And we were fascinated by the church anyway. We were fascinated in religious ideas, esoteric things. Yeah, because you, you grew up uh, Catholic, I guess, or... We both did, yes. Yeah. Right. But he was even more into it than I was. I mean, he was a third order Franciscan, wow. uh, if anybody knows what that means. I mean, this is sort of a lay a lay version of a, a monastic thing. So he was involved with that. He had all these religious uh, vestments. He had religious implements. He had chalices and suboria. I mean, he was just a fanatic about the church, where I was more of a fanatic about the esoteric aspects of, of religion. Right, right. So the two of us got together. We formed a church. But, but, but uh, hang on. Uh, this isn't even a part of this story, but just for curiosity, you would be much more proper than to, to go into some Gnostic uh, church thing. Yeah, since that was your well, number one, we didn't know it existed. Right, we're seventeen years old. This is yeah, before. Yeah, okay, internet, right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there's no internet. There's no nothing. We're, we're seventeen years old. We're in the Bronx. All we know from is Catholic churches and then the Orthodox churches. We started to look at the Orthodox churches very carefully because there were just so many of them, and we kind of liked their approach better. We couldn't actually go and incorporate a Catholic church. That would have been illegal. Yeah. Or so it would have gotten us into all sorts of trouble. L- let me just interject very quick for sure. the listeners who don't know, and that is that the Catholic church is the most, you want to say, authoritarian. So it's, yeah. it's, it's hard. In order to have renegade lineages there, you have to break with, with them, like the liberal Catholic church. Sure. Whereas the Orthodox church is somewhere between a strict hierarchy and autonomy, and whereas the Gnostic churches are all about autonomy, and those are the easiest to be like a renegade, uh, chaotic web. Well, <laughs> and well, then, uh, yeah. Well, let me put this in, in some in some greater context, though, because the Gnostic churches you're talking about came out of the renegade Orthodox and renegade Catholic, the old Roman Catholic churches. Their lineages go back to the same place my lineages went to eventually, and David Ferries and Jack Martins and everyone else. Those Gnostic churches were not standalone. They wanted to be bishops, but they wanted to be legitimate bishops. They wanted apostolic succession, Mm. the legitimacy. So where where could they go? They had to go to these various wandering bishop operations yeah so that's where they yeah but so supposedly there is uh, a lineage going through uh, bernard raymond fabrité or something like that do you, do you know about that yeah but it's you know if, if you go to the states if you go to the gnostic churches here yeah. uh spruitz church uh stephen um uh, what's his name the the Gnostic, the famous gnostic author he writes a lot of gnostic yeah uh, i know books and everything mean. else i'm mm. his, his name escaped stephen holler holler that's right yeah. his lineage is the same his lineage goes through <laughs> These wandering bishop lineages. There's no, yeah, there's I no see. doubt about it. I know his lineage quite well, and I've written about it. It's, they all come from this, the the OTO, right? The Gnostic Catholic Ecclesia, Gnostic Catholic Catholic, whatever they call it, yeah. the ecclesiastical Gnostic, you know, operation. Universalis Apostolica. Uh, there's, yeah. there's several of them, but the main one out of, out of the the Carolis organization, yep. the OTO, the Gnostic Catholic Church, that group, the EGC, mm. also all of their lineage is through the wandering bishops. Okay. Mm. It's through the old Roman Catholic lineage and through the Orthodox lineage. It's all the same pot, and they all grew out of that. So, so, so we can see how easy it is to exploit it because it doesn't have a strict hierarchy to, to control it, I mean. It, it's not a question of the hierarchy. The Catholic Church, you know, the head of the church is the Pope, there's cardinals, there's bishops, there's no way out, you know. Yeah, yeah. The Orthodox churches are all national churches. Yeah, so a little more autonomy. Yeah, I think pretty much, yeah. I, so that was our way in because they were 
national churches. I'm trying to explain how this worked. Mm. The Greek church, of course, headquartered in Athens, it was the Greek church, the Greek Orthodox. There were several groups that broke off, but they were all Greek. Uh, the same thing with the Russian churches. There were at least three major Russian denominations. And this is where it became interesting because of the Russian Revolution. The Russian Revolution meant there was one group that split off and became anti-communist. Yeah. And that was a Russian Orthodox Church uh, located in Manhattan on Park Avenue. They have a beautiful building up there around 92nd Street. And these are the sort of the Dr. Zhivago Russians. Okay, mm. So this was they owed no allegiance to Moscow. A few blocks away on Fifth Avenue was another cathedral of Russian Orthodox, which owed allegiance to Moscow. So now you have two competing Russian Orthodox churches. <laughs> so suddenly it opened our eyes to the possibilities. We were Slovak and Czech. At that time, they were still behind the Iron Curtain, right? right. The Czech mm -hmm. Republic and the Slovak, Czechoslovakia was behind. Yeah, 1968 and yeah, all that. Of course, yeah. the 68 was the mm -hmm. Prague Spring, right? Mm -hmm. So you have these churches behind the Iron Curtain under Russian domination. The Ukrainian Orthodox Church, the same thing. Uh, there were many Ukrainian branches of, of the Ukrainian church in the United States, they were all at war with each other. So there was one that was very pro-Nazi during the war. Yeah, because the, I know the white Russian exile community was very Nazi. But the same goes for the Ukrainian. Exactly, yes. Mm, okay. So you had various versions of that. Mm. So uh, my friend and I were Slovak and, and Czech uh, in his case. So we're, we're sitting there thinking, well, you know, we know that there's Czech and Slovak Orthodox. But there's not many of them. We need to find them. We need to build a church around this concept because there is no <laughs> Slovak or Czech church in the United States. Right. We'll be the first. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was, it was just tailor-made. So we incorporated something called the Autocephalus Slavonic Orthodox Catholic Church of North and South America Incorporated. <laughs> so, at, at 17. <laughs> at 17. And we, we couldn't sign the incorporation papers ourselves <laughs> because we were underage. Yeah. So we had to find adults to actually do the signing, which which we did, and then we incorporated the church. And my friend was very into stationery, so we had this beautiful, you know, embossed stationery printed with crosses and Gothic lettering and Old English lettering and all this other stuff, and naming ourselves like the leaders of this. But we did have one guy who was trained in the church in uh, in in Central Europe somewhere. I was never able to figure out where, and he became our archbishop. He became the head of the church. And then we were a subordinate to him, and we created this church, and then that's how we came to the attention of the American Orthodox Catholic Church. We thought, this is cool. This is another Orthodox church. Let's see if we can get them to consecrate us, and we'll be doubly consecrated, and on and on and on. So Already we, you were into that. <laughs> already. You're 17 years old. This was very important. So not knowing, because we're 17, the only political thing in our future is Vietnam, right? We're totally unaware of the, the, the undercurrents that are taking place and the role that this church in the Bronx had in connection with the Kennedy assassination. Of course, we were totally unaware of that. We were aware of the intelligence connections, but as said, at 17 years old in those days, you were pretty innocent. I mean, you didn't really put two and two together. You, you were not you know, up on the conspiracy theory stuff, so, which was just beginning as, a, as, a, as an industry, conspiracy theory. Mm -hmm. So this was kind of new. So we just were totally basically unaware of what's going on. Um, uh, like I say, I'm trying to make a very long, complicated story very short. So 
eventually, I'm involved with the church where we both are, we become reordained as priests in the church. We become uh, elevated. I become an abbot uh, in March of 1969 of this church. Uh, and then my friend, who's uh, uh, it's another rank. H- hang on. Th- these things are for life. So I guess I should talk like you, Father, then. <laughs> <laughs> Father Lavender. Well, 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 in those days, but then it was abbot, which meant that I ran a monastery, you know, oh. which I didn't have, obviously. Yeah. And then later on, you know, years later, there was a, a consecration involved. So yeah. uh, it, it just it just got stupid, basically. So we, we multiplied this and multiplied this. And as this is going on, I leave it because it becomes too stupid even for me. Um, there's all kinds of political machinations going on behind the scenes. I'm starting to get upset with the whole thing. I just sort of walk away from it. Because you recognize how unspiritual many of these people are. Absolutely. It was just terrible. There was no spirituality there. This was just ego. Uh, there was politics involved, a lot of politics. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Russian Orthodox Church, the one in, on Fifth Avenue, the, the, the Moscow Church was running KGB agents in and out. Everybody knew who they were. I mean, the whole thing was a mess. It was like stupid. So any, And we met a lot of Catholics, too. We, you know, we interfaced with Catholic uh, priests and, and, and people, and sitting around with a bunch of Catholic priests sometimes talking shop is very depressing also. <laughs> it's just, you know, there's no spirituality there at all. These are very cynical people quite often. No, but no, no wonder CIA wants to infiltrate it if KGB already have. Uh, sure, it was, it was tailor-made for these guys, mm. you know, for CIA, for KGB, for these days for FSB. It doesn't matter. I mean, this is, this is a, a conduit, you know, it's perfect. Because in the 1960s, if you were dressed as a priest and you had a Roman collar, you had a cassock, you were obviously a priest, you had a cross around your neck, you could basically go anywhere and nobody would stop you. Mm. And the, the, the example I always bring out is going to, for instance, a hospital in the middle of the night. Let's say you, there's somebody who's sick, uh, they're in the hospital bed. It's not visiting hours, but a priest can go in at any time where they used to be able to. Wow. So a priest walks into a hospital and goes and visits a dying you know, uh, or a sick person. He walks away an hour later, they're dead. <laughs> Nobody's going to suspect the priest. No. Right, the priest is going to be allowed to get in and allowed to leave, yeah. and this was an example that's always stuck in my mind. Every time you know somebody heart attacks, as they call it, there's like a witness or something, and suddenly, boom, heart attack. Mm. Uh, who was his visitor? You know, was he in the hospital? You know, was there a priest involved? Because if there was, the guy wasn't a priest. Mm. But if you're dressed that way, I had the experience. Okay. Dressed as a priest, I would be able to get onto any public transportation without paying. You know, we would go to restaurants. <laughs> so you exploited this when you discovered how easy it was. Well, we didn't know. You know, we just we were just stunned by this, oh, okay. this realization. You suddenly had entree everywhere. <laughs> right. Nobody stopped you. Yeah. Um, so it was through that exposure. Okay, that as I left that church, as I abandoned the whole thing because it was just too much, I was receiving phone calls. From people who, you know, I, I had an unlisted phone number. I lived with my parents at the time. I'm a teenager, right? I'm getting phone calls from the Russian Orthodox Church. I'm getting phone calls from all sorts of people trying to figure out what happened. What did I know? It was making me rather uncomfortable. How do these people know who I was, where I was? They wanted to meet with me. I was invited to join the, the Syrian Orthodox Church. I was invited to join the, the Russian Orthodox Church. Uh, all of these things, they wanted me sort of under their wing and out of the way, in a sense. Don't you think they realized that because you were so young and impressive, they could use you to spy on other people in that uh, milieu? Well, that was an attention to to get all of you. Well, 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 well. Sure. I mean, remember the whole point of this whole thing 
initially was to get a deferment from selective service and not go to the army, right? Yeah, for you. Yeah. For me. Yeah. So what happened was, what happened was, I had a meeting. One of the bishops that we were involved with in this weird milieu mm. uh, set up a meeting for me. He had excellent connections. And I'm sitting across from the man who was the head of the selective service in New York City. Mm. You know, no draft resistor would have that kind of access under normal <laughs> circumstances, right? <laughs> no. They deal with the bureaucracy. Yeah. I'm sitting across from a guy who's wearing a jacket with elbow patches, right? right? And he has a pipe, and he looks like Alan Dulles, right? <laughs> and he's sitting behind this desk. And um, he's making some jokes and everything else, you know. But he signs off on it. And he says, listen, you're involved with these Eastern Orthodox churches. You hear anything suspicious. You find out anything interesting. You let us know. Right. So suddenly, I'm sort of informally given the deferment as long as... I'm reporting back. Right. Okay, so there's the beginning. There is the, you know, the, the, the germ of this concept, and I'm seeing it face to face. Yeah. And it, it was fascinating to me. And I know the guy's name to this day, Colonel Kirschenbaum. He passed away a few years ago. But I, I followed up as, much as, as best as I could because this guy got me, you know, out of the draft. Yeah. Um, and he was a very nice guy. And he, the whole point, though, was quid pro quo. Mm. And now I'm getting approached by the Russians and by all kinds of other churches for the same kind of exactly. yeah. you know. So this is what was going on. And that made me aware of this, but still I stayed away. Okay. So you fast forward decades, and I become interested in the Kennedy assassination, and I'm researching the assassination. And I'm looking through, you know, Mary Farrell had put all these archives online. Uh, Mary Farrell was a famous JFK assassination researcher in Texas. And I'm starting to look through all of this. And I come across these connections that I can't believe I'm looking at, uh, just from the Warren Commission. And I realize that Ruth Payne, this is the woman who got Oswald his job at the Texas School Book Depository. Ruth Payne is the woman who had Marina Oswald and Lee Harvey Oswald in her home, letting Marina stay there with the children while Lee went looking for work. This is the Ruth Payne. And she's testifying before the Warren Commission, and they're asking her about her travels in the months leading up to the assassination and her relationship, obviously, with Oswald. And she starts talking about a trip that she made around August, September of 1963, two months before the assassination. And she's talking about going up to Philadelphia, and she's going to meet Arthur Young. Now, Arthur Young is a famous name. Arthur Young was the inventor of the Bell Helicopter. Mm -hmm. Arthur Young was deeply involved in the military-industrial complex and then opted out after the end of World War II to pursue esoterica, to pursue studies of the paranormal, studies of uh, Gnosticism and uh, weird religions. Is that the guy who was involved in the Ring of Nine or whatever they're called? Absolutely. I've heard, yeah, I've, I've heard about yeah. that before. Mm. So she's going to talk about this. Mm. She's starting to get into it, and Alan Dulles is there, is present, and he cuts her off, and he changes the subject completely. She never gets around to describing that critical trip, to me, to my mind, critical, because she went to see Arthur Young, who was her father-in-law, Wow! right? Yeah. She's married to Michael Payne. Michael Payne is Arthur Young's son-in-law by his, uh, his then-current wife, Ruth Forbes, the Forbes, the John Kerry Forbes. Right. He's married to Ruth Forbes. Her son is, Ruth, is, is Michael Payne. Michael Payne's married to another Ruth, Ruth Payne, who's living in Texas at the time. Mm -hmm. And I'm looking at this and I'm saying, what? She's going to meet Arthur Young? 
And, and why was Dulles so worried about this connection? Mm. So then I start really pulling out all the stops, and I'm looking to see what happened. And, of course, Ruth, Payne's, uh, Ruth Forbes Payne, Arthur Young's wife, is the best friend of Mary Bancroft. And Mary Bancroft was Alan Dulles's mistress for many years. Mm. All of this is completely documented. There's no mystery about it. Mm. So I'm looking at this, and I'm thinking, what? Because then Arthur Young and Ruth Forbes were part of this group called The Nine, as you mentioned. This was back in 1953. It was nine people who gathered for a seance and thought they were in contact with, U- with the UFO, you know, hovering over the earth. Mm. These sort of disembodied spirits who were then giving these nine individuals their marching orders to go out and, you know, make a better world or something. And it was Arthur Young. It was Ruth Forbes. It was a… Uh, yeah, this UFO cult had people from the establishment, the old blood uh, elites, right? Forbes, Astor, DuPont. Yeah. Uh, they, these were all people in, heavily involved. They were American blue blood aristocracy. Just like uh, in the turn of the, the last uh, century around uh, Tesla's time, there were similar circles among the elite who were channeling. Not similar. I de- it was the same people? Not similar. Identical people. Okay. Oh, right. Is that, uh, so the group is that old? Oh, absolutely. The Astors were helping to finance Tesla. Right. And there was an Astor. Ava Muriel Astor was at the seance of the nine. She was heavily involved in theosophy, heavily involved with the, the Alice Bailey stuff, spiritualism, yeah. and all of that, very much involved with that. And then channeled the UFO uh, impulses or something like that, right? Right. Aliens. Yeah. 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 Interesting. Okay. So the guy behind it was Andrea Puharic, uh, of, of Yugoslav descent. Uh, again, somebody who was very familiar with Tesla mm. because of the same uh, sort of ethnic backgrounds they all shared in common. Uh, Puharich was also a major in the, uh, or a captain rather, I think later a major in the U.S. Army during the Korean War. Uh, he gave speeches on how to weaponize the paranormal, how to weaponize ESP and telepathy and that sort of thing. Uh, very involved in all of that. A, a brilliant engineer, a brilliant scientist at the time. Mm. And, uh, involved with uh, with this group of people who then became involved in the Kennedy assassination, right? Mm. So I'm looking at the nine on the one hand, I'm looking at the churches on the other. And Garrison's in the middle of all this, he doesn't know what to make of it. So Jim Garrison is totally at sea. So I'm trying to find a way to to bring all of this together and a lot of that became, you know, became sinister forces. Mm. Uh, it was the idea that there were sinister forces behind key uh, events in American history and, and Sinister Forces focuses on American history, whereas my other books have talked about you know Nazi history, European history, and whatnot. But the three volumes of Sinister Forces really focuses on what went on in the, in this country, in the United States, you know, really from the beginning until now. Which one covers Kennedy? The first volume. Mm. Uh, it talks about the. It's subtitled the Nine, mm. and it's, it talks about Kennedy. It talks about uh, the Nine, essentially what they were involved with, and of course the involvement of Guy Bannister who was running the detective agency in New Orleans that Oswald was evidently running out of as well. Mm. Uh, Bannister was the guy who hired Jack Martin and David Ferry. Uh, Ed Asner played him in the movie JFK. Right. So this is, he was involved in the UFO research when he was an FBI agent in the Pacific Northwest. He's reporting back to J. Edgar Hoover constantly on UFO sightings. I have those files as well. Anybody can get them, download them from the FBI website. And you'll find that his initials there, WGB, which is for Guy Bannister, mm. sometimes they're signed Bannister, and they're subtitled Files X, or SX Files, literally. Yeah. And, and he was you know, doing UFO stuff, 
and then involved in the Kennedy or, or believed to be involved in the Kennedy assassination. He was certainly involved in extreme right wing uh, conspiracies. He was involved in you know the anti Castro Cuban uh, environment as well. So all of these people are just all around Oswald. Oswald, you know, really didn't have a chance. Mm. His good friend, the white Russian uh, George de Morinschild, mm. again another Russian, uh, white Russian uh, sort of emigre type. And connected to both CIA and probably also Bowman's uh, exile Nazi network, Galen and all those. Right. Morin, de Morinschild was involved with a guy called, um, oh, his, no, his name again it just escapes me, but the man who was really discovering psychoactive mushrooms. Uh, the guy who you know was down in South America doing all the mushroom research. He became very famous. He was on the cover of Life magazine, you know, talking about this sort of thing. When he was down there researching mushrooms, he was doing that for Andrea Puharich of the Nine. And they were supposed to be conducting telepathic experiments while he was down there. But he became so involved in getting stoned on mushrooms <laughs> that the experiments never took place. But de Morinschild knew him. You know, DeMorinshield was connected to him. He had the guy's uh, address and phone number in his address book when, when he died, DeMorinshield, mm-hmm. when he supposedly committed suicide during the, the, the hearings on the assassinations. So there's the, these connections going back to a very small group of individuals. It's a very incestuous mm-hmm. little group of people who all knew each other and who were all motivated by weird spiritual and UFO-related ideas, beliefs, uh, and, and commitments, convictions in many cases. So this made me take a, a different look at the Kennedy assassination to say, what was this all about and how come no one else has focused on this when the documentation is overwhelming? There's stacks of paper on this, but nobody cares to look at it. They just don't know how to approach the material, I suppose. Wow. So, um, but um, I just talked with Joseph about this same subject and um uh, and he incidentally have a background from um, also from orthodox circles and and while you frequented ukrainian exiles he frequented white russians <laughs> and, no but i i did as well you, i mean i was very involved with the white russian group on park avenue the one i told you about yeah because all all these circles overlap right yeah we knew each other very well i mean we were yeah. in each other's places constantly in fact there was the principal of St. Sergius High School at the time in the 1960s, which was the Russian, the white Russian church, uh, their own parochial school. And because he knew us and was told to stop dealing with us, and he didn't, they pushed him down an elevator shaft and broke his legs. These guys are ruthless. Wow. Oh, they're, they're, they, and then it got worse. Then the Ukrainian Orthodox Church, when the wall went down, you know, and suddenly there's no Soviet Union anymore, and the Soviet Union was disbanded. And now the Ukrainians now are free to do what they want. The Ukrainian Orthodox out of Ukraine wanted to take control of the Ukrainian churches in the States. And that meant that my friend, my colleague, who was still involved in the churches for the rest of his life, whereas I left, he stayed in. He became consecrated as a Ukrainian Orthodox bishop, hmm. right? For real. He, he took this seriously then. Oh, he took it. Well, he took it very seriously from the point of view that he liked he liked the vestments and he liked the authority and he liked the the respect and all the rest of it. He was in it for personal reasons, not for spiritual reasons necessarily. But he was, you know, he was a major factor. He was a player. He suddenly had become a player. Mm. So as early as sixty eight, sixty nine, he became very involved with the Ukrainians, and then he became consecrated as a Ukrainian bishop. Did you keep in touch with him? No, not after this period. 
Because he could have been a valuable source for you after you became an investigative author. <laughs> yeah, he, he, he might have been, but he was a little flaky, so I don't know if he would have been very reliable. Okay. But my point is, the Ukrainians came over then. Suddenly, his position is in jeopardy because he was consecrated by one of these groups in the States. Mm. And now Ukraine wants to take charge of all of that, all the churches, all the property, right? Mm. All the people, all everything, all the income that was coming in from those churches, and they wanted him out. And there is a very mysterious case regarding him, and that is that he died mysteriously. Ooh. He died of arsenic poisoning. Wow. At the same time that a meeting was being held in New Jersey to decide the fate of the Ukrainian churches in the United States. He would have been one who would have either resisted the takeover or who would have wanted a bigger piece of the pie in Ukraine. Yeah, this stuff, this business is ruthless. Very ruthless. It's political. Sure. And you saw the same thing actually both in the Russian Orthodox and the Greek Orthodox Church. You saw in the Russian Orthodox Church that after the fall of the Soviet Union, mm-hmm. It was a battle of who was to continue that church. And you had that, uh, that faction that was on the side of the authorities. And then you had the more, I guess, the nationalistic uh, faction. And you see the same in the Greek church too. It's been power battle because you, you said that the, the head is in Athens. Uh, traditionally, the head is in Constantinople where Bartholomew resides. Right. But there's been also in the Greek church... Uh, I'm saying this for the benefit of the audience. Sure. Uh, so in the Greek church, there's also been like, which is the right authority? And and it's pretty sad, actually, because they're not supposed to have a pope <laughs> in these churches. Well, no, but but each church has its own its own head, right? Yeah. And the, the pope is supposed to be only the first among equals. And the patriarchate is only supposed to be the first among equals as well. But each church has their own nationalistic leader, and that's the leader of that particular ethnicity because the the services are in the, the local language. The Greek right. Orthodox churches are in Greek and Syrian and Arabic and et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Everything is kept very local, very ethnic. So this is what gave us the entree. It enabled us to do what we did. Mm. But the battling that took place after the fall of the Soviet Union was tremendous. So you had a lot of infighting. It was very political. You had agents operating on all sides. You had people betraying each other. You had all sorts of things going on. It was like it was like an actual war between countries, this war between churches. Yeah, and at one point you had uh, bishops marching in the streets of Moscow together with neo-Nazis and, and ultra Oh, yeah, well, in Ukraine as well. Mm. There was a very strong pro-Nazi Ukrainian Orthodox Church. And the Nazis, we know, used these churches to put in, uh, to rehabilitate, uh, you know, with new identity and stuff. Right. So this has gone on at least since the Second World War. You told us the last time in the Hitler escape story how you had, uh, uh, for instance, in these towns where there weren't any clear authorities, you had like priests uh, walking in the streets together with SS uh, officers and the rat lines, how they were organized through the churches. Sure. So there's an old relationship here between Nazis, intelligence community, and these churches, these traditional churches. For for political reasons, because communism was considered atheism. Yeah. So it was... Common enemy, right? It was a common enemy, enemy. yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. All of our files are free and will remain free. If you like the show... You can show support by donating $1 to help with expenses. Just use the PayPal link on our website, 
YouTube channel or Facebook page. Thanks. So, so if we go back then to like, there's two things I want to know from you on this topic. Uh, one, okay. what you perceive as the Nazis' connections. So, the Nazi aspects to the JFK story, but also the weird aspects, the UFO aspects. That's that's there. That you, I guess, you more cover in the nine. Yeah, I, I talk about that because of the. I mean, I I I was never much of a. Um, a person who was interested in the UFO phenomenon, mm. uh, except very peripherally. I was not one of these people who devoured all these books and stuff on, on UFOs or who was a, necessarily a believer. Um, it, just, it just was not on my radar. I was interested in, in esoteric stuff. I was interested in re- history of religions. Uh, and I was interested in political uh, stuff as well, political conspiracies. Uh, from an investigative journalist point of view, not from a sort of Alex Jones conspiracy theory thing. I like to work with as many facts as possible and try to make them try to understand them. So the UFO thing seemed like it was there weren't enough facts, you know, to deal with. Mm. So I was sort of, you know, it was a lot of eyewitness stuff, but the rest of it, you know, just wasn't interesting to me until suddenly I'm researching again the Kennedy assassination and these names keep coming up. You know, you keep come coming up with Guy Bannister, and then you come up with Fred Crisman. And, you know, there's this interview of Fred Crisman by by Garrison's people. And who's Fred Crisman, right? And why is he subpoenaed? Crisman is in Seattle and he's been subpoenaed to go down to New Orleans uh and you know and talk to to Garrison's people on the Kennedy assassination. And so I start looking at Fred Crisman and I realize that Fred Crisman was like the key figure in that very sort of seminal UFO event of, of the post-war period which was Maury Island, which was this weird event that took place or didn't take place depending on your point of view which took place in june of 1947 Mm -hmm. in which uh there's a a guy in a boat and they're out in puget sound near tacoma and there's this sighting of a ufo in distress or a number of ufos one of them is in distress and there's this rain of metal that hits the boat and kills a dog and wounds a, a boy and all the rest of it. So this is a famous UFO case. Very, the like the like the first of the famous UFO cases. Okay. It happens around the same time as Kenneth Arnold, uh, which was the famous sighting that gave us the term flying saucer. Right. So this is in '47, right? And Roswell happens in July of '47. Mm. So you have Kenneth Arnold, you have Roswell, and you have Maury Island, all taking place within a week or so of each other. Mm. And we don't know if Maury Island really happened, or if it was kind of a hoax. There's people have given conflicting testimony on this, but one thing is for sure, there was something there. It hit the newspapers. A guy called Fred Crisman really sort of publicized this event to a certain extent, to the to the point where the the Army Air Force at that time it was still part of the Army sent two investigators, two intelligence officers to talk to Fred Crisman, and to talk to Harold Dahl, who was the guy on the boat uh, whose dog got killed, I guess. So they're all talking to the Air Force investigators. We don't know what their take was on this, if the, if they, if the Air Force considered this real or not. But they had flown there in, a, in an Air Force plane, in a bomber, which was at their disposal to investigate this phenomenon. They went out there. They talked to these guys. Fred Crisman hands them a box full of the pieces of the UFO, right, slag, basically, and a bunch of rocks, you know, a box of rocks, and he hands it to these two investigators to take back with them. Maybe they could investigate it and see if it was, you know, material from out of this world or something. Mm. 
The investigators take the box, they get on the plane, the plane flies off, and within minutes, it crashes, and it kills the two investigators. Okay, so this was a very important event. These are the first two people actually killed as a result of a UFO investigation yeah. uh, in, in modern times, and in, in, this was in 1947. So this event, the Maury Island, because Maury Island is the island in the Puget Sound where this happened, this event called Maury Island was sort of seminal because then Crisman got, gets involved with Kenneth Arnold, and they're, both, they're all having a meeting to discuss this this event. The meeting is, I don't know, bugged or taped or something, and, and conversations get printed in the newspapers. The whole thing is very mysterious. It's like an intelligence aspect to this thing, which is very weird. So, okay, that's happening in 1947. Eventually, it all dies down. We don't hear about it very much after that. And then suddenly, in the 1960s, in 1968, we're hearing about it again, because now Garrison, Jim Garrison in New Orleans, thinks Fred Crisman because of his connections to some murky intelligence operations, because of his connections to the Minutemen, which was a kind of right-wing paramilitary organization, because of all of this, he thinks Fred Crisman has knowledge about the assassination of President Kennedy. Hmm. Well, Crisman was being investigated by a guy called Guy Bannister back in 1947. And Guy Bannister was an FBI agent in the Pacific Northwest who's reporting back to J. Edgar Hoover directly by telegram on UFO sightings and his investigations. That's in 1947, hmm. right? He becomes special agent in charge S SSAC in Chicago. He's a very well-decorated, very well-known FBI agent. He retires, he moves to New Orleans, opens up his, his private investigation outfit. And he's like really running a front for anti-Castro Cubans and sort of right-wing, really extreme right-wing political organizations, a very racist guy, all sorts of racist credentials to his name. And Oswald's operating out of that office, as far as we can tell. So he's Oswald's boss. Uh, or his contact or his handler or something. It's yeah. a, it's a yeah. connection for Oswald anyway. And, he's, and so there's Oswald, there's Guy Bannister, and you know now there's Fred Crisman. This is making Garrison nuts, right? It's all happening in his town. But it's making me more nuts because Garrison didn't know about Fred Crisman and Guy Bannister's involvement in the seminal UFO event of 1947, right? These are these UFO guys with intelligence backgrounds who are now considered to be co-conspirators in the Kennedy assassination. And who's operating out of Guy Bannister's office? But a bunch of bishops. Mm -hmm. So you have David Ferry, you have Jack Martin with their bishop connections with their church connections and this is making garrison nuts he cannot see a connection to all of this of course because he's he's stumbling uh across the big picture without knowing it. exactly you know mm. and so i'm looking at this and i'm thinking holy crap i know what's going on i don't know fully what's going on but i have pieces of the puzzle so i'm starting to investigate this very seriously i'm asking a lot of questions i start finding the bishops that were around in those days the ones that are still alive and believe me there were a few still alive who could actually talk to me mm. some of them wrote to me very long letters uh giving me the names dates and places mm. uh the church that i was involved with was a front for the fbi mm. they bragged about it actually a man called Carl Stanley. Hey, it could be worse. It could have been a front for CIA or, or even the Nazis. <laughs> so you were better off, I think, with that. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not 100% sure that it wasn't. I'm leading up to that. Oh, okay. So there's a man called Carl Stanley. Carl Stanley was another bishop. He was based in Louisville, Kentucky. He had a criminal background. 
but he was a bishop or an archbishop in this church. You'll see pictures of him on the internet as well, okay. Carl Stanley. Famous guy in these circles. He was questioned at length by the FBI about the assassination because Jack Martin and David Ferry kind of implicated him in the assassination. So they went up to talk to Carl Stanley. Uh, and Stanley, of course, uh, stonewalled whatever he could and, you know, uh, blah, 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 did his, did his thing. But what happened was, this was in 1963, what happened was Stanley was called to New York City, to the Bronx, mm -hmm. by Profeta, the man I mentioned to you, to be vetted by the FBI. Stanley goes and visits Profeta in the Bronx. He cannot maintain his position as bishop unless he does so. So he goes and visits Profeta. He comes back from the Bronx to Kentucky, and he's dead a month later. Hmm. They were mopping up people that would have reflected badly on them. Carl Stanley had a rap sheet, as we call a, a, a criminal record. He had to be eliminated because perhaps he did have connections to the assassination. After all, he knew Jack, Fer Jack Martin and David Ferry. When Garrison's files were released and I was able to look at his assassination records, I found a letter that was kind of chilling because it was sent to Jim Garrison by Walter Profeta, the head of that weird church in the Bronx, mm -hmm. on stationery with which I was very familiar because I had typed letters on that stationery for a year. And it was a letter to Garrison saying, when you're finished with Jack Martin, please send him back to us. Right. Mm -hmm. So there was the sudden understanding between Profeta in the Bronx, Garrison in New Orleans, that Jack Martin was a key figure in this. Profeta knew it, Garrison knew it, and Profeta's asking for Jack Martin to be released back into his custody. Mm. Um, the, the amount of connections that were taking place that were verified, things that I only suspected until I could see Garrison's file, suddenly came into sharp relief. And the things the other bishops told me about being commanded to show up and to, you know, kiss the ring of J. Edgar Hoover, basically. Right. Because Hoover was on the board of directors. Hoover was supposedly one of the guys who was running that Orthodox church in the Bronx because it was his little way of, of doing covert operations. Is Hoover from, uh, isn't he a Western Anglo-Saxon guy? Oh, yeah, it didn't matter. This is, this is politics. Why would he be involved? This is politics. It's only politics. It's a front. Just like, just like, yeah, but it's not a believable front that he's suddenly orthodox. So. No, 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 no. Nobody knew about this. Oh, okay. The only ones who knew were the ones who were commanded to show up, mm. you know, and, and, get, and sign the loyalty oath or some damn thing. I see, I see. These, this, this was not – Hoover didn't go around saying he was orthodox. <laughs> My God, that would have ruined him. Yeah. No, 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 no. This was, this was very – That and his uh, transvestite tendencies. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, Bishop <laughs> – And they probably had, a, had blackmailing on him. Well, it could be anything, you know. But yeah. the point was here's Hoover using this church as his personal covert operations, covert action, you know, uh, uh, unit. Right. But that wasn't all because while I was at the church, they, they ran a lot of foreigners – through the church while I was there. In the very brief time that I was there, it was like a year, 18 months or so. In that amount of time, they were running people in from Africa, from Nigeria, during the Biafran Civil War. There was a civil war in Nigeria between the Catholics from Biafra and everybody else in Nigeria, Muslim and, and uh, other types of, of Christian religions. So there was a civil war taking place. Ugly. Catholics were very pro-Biafra, of course, but not my church, you know, not the American Orthodox Catholic Church. We were consecrating bishops for the other side, just for political purposes. And these were guys who were practically animists. They were not, we didn't really regard them as 
as even Christian, but they were coming over in dashikis and everything else, being made bishops and being sent back almost immediately. I picked one up at the airport and took him to the church. Um, then we ran a bunch of Italians through for some reason when there was all the problems with the communist uh, uprisings and you know getting, getting powerful in Italy. We were consecrating Italians as bishops, people who were not clergy at all, and sending them back. Uh, so I knew this was taking place. That didn't sound like FBI to me. That sounded like CIA, you know. Yeah. So we're giving these credentials and these papers, and it looks legitimate. There's a church in New York City, so they're legitimately priests or bishops. So they had entree to places where they ordinarily would not have. So all of this is taking place all during this time, and I'm witnessing this. I know this is going on. But it didn't, doesn't all come together until decades later when I'm in contact with these other bishops. I, I tell them up front, look, I'm researching this material. I'm going to write about it. What do you know? I knew Profeta. I knew this guy, this one, the other one. I named names, and they said, okay, well, then you know this and you know that. So this was for your preparations for the first uh, Sinister Forces book. Then. Right, exactly. Mm. And so in Sinister Forces, in Volume 1, there's the chapter on JFK, but there's also an appendix, which I call a field guide to wandering bishops, which helps to maybe clarify some of this, because it sounds very confusing to most people. It doesn't make a lot of sense. So you have to, you need a scorecard. You need to figure out who the players are. And I try to do that in Sinister Forces, book one. Well, that's so practical. Yeah. That's nice. Yeah. yeah. Hmm. So people can look at that and think, okay, this is how this happened. This is how that happened. The Gnostics, uh, Stephen Haller, of course, Herman Spruitt, um, uh, they all come from this, I mean, they're, they're, their uh, consecrations come from this realm. Some of them have consecrations that go back to Jack Martin, a, water, a, a Kennedy co-conspirator. I mean, it's unbelievable Americana. It's unbelievable stuff. You know what, people? You should get the book just because of this chart. Well, just I'm going. It's one of the books of you I don't have, unfortunately, but I'm going to get it now just because of the chart. <laughs> well, it will freak you out. You know, it, it, uh, it lays <laughs> Well, it will also help me out because I'm the, one of those who are a little confused about all these uh, intermingling. Unless you're in the middle of it, you know, you yeah, really yeah. can't understand it. it. This is why Garrison had such a problem because he's thinking in normal terms about churches. Once you're in the middle of it, you see it really isn't normal at all. Mm. These, these things are made up. They're invented entities. They don't really exist in reality the way we think of churches. And they were used as, as fronts, not just for intelligence operations, but for criminal activity as well. I mean, this was a perfect cover for all sorts of activity. But, you know, I look at the JFK phenomenon as a perfect storm. Yes, perfect. Because there's so many weird connections. You have proven connections between the churches thing and the intelligence and the JFK thing. And we also have proven connections to UFOs. Obviously, you know about the CIA papers. Sure. You know about um, Khrushchev's son, who talked about the joint space program. Uh, right. You know about uh, Douglas Caddy. There was recent sure. theory with uh, dark journalists. So, so there's so many proof, circumstantial evidence that uh, the UFO phenomenon is connected to this. Yeah. Uh, and then you have uh, also the Nazi connections, because this is a part of our examination of the Nazi aspect of the breakaway civilization history, that uh, we've had lots of elaborations from Joseph's on. But uh, you have your own insights into this. Well, you know, I probably wouldn't be able to add much to what Joseph's already told you about, because we work from a lot of the same... Uh you know, material, basically. Yeah, but the list you just gave us, uh, the shortlist, uh, was a yeah. stuff he hasn't elaborated on to us. So, Well, I, I think he's probably covered a lot of it. I mean, as far as the Nazi connection, the, the obvious one 
right away is you know the the military industrial complex involvement yeah. in all of this i mean kennedy was a a major figure in the military industrial complex because he wanted to go to the moon you know before the decade was over he made these promises he was also considering working with the soviet union in a joint space program that was a major threat to the military industrial complex but if you step back from the military industrial complex from that term for a second and you just step back a little bit you see that it was riddled through with paperclip scientists nazi scientists that we brought over and as recent um and galen spice by network well yeah Galen on on one hand, but also the total dominance of of Nazis and Nazi uh, uh, scientists in our space program mm. is is stunning. And I'm I've been doing a lot of research on that recently. Oh, interesting! And coming out with um, a series of three books uh, this year, another trilogy. Wow! So that's what. Yeah, you told us uh, you, about those three books last time, but you couldn't talk about the subject. Yeah, I'm not. But it's, it sounds like you're going to take on uh, the same uh, subject that Richard Hoagland addressed in his um, dark mission. In in a different in a different way, I think you'll be uh, interested to to see how this is being handled, because uh, it's as a collaborative a collaborative work. Myself and other people are involved in this, but I'm doing the nonfiction end of it primarily. That's sort of my bailiwick, but there's a, a bigger project involved with this. Oh, interesting. Entertainment. There's entertainment involved, yes. Great. And there's uh, there's film, there's documentaries. There's So you're the consultant, so to speak, the historian they use. I, I'm, uh, well, I'm involved. These three books are collaborative effort, but it's primarily me doing a lot of research and a lot of writing. Kudos. It's It's going to be involving this entire subject. But the, the point I wanted to make about the Nazi thing is that I was looking at the presence of people like Walter Dernberger, or Werner von Braun, et cetera, et cetera, in our space program and looking at the timing of it, looking at going to World War II before the war is even over, looking at the timing of what's going on. It wasn't just paperclip. Prior to paperclip, there was the Operation Alsos, which was connected to the Manhattan Project. And that was taking place in March, April, May of the war, before even the, the last shots were fired. We had people working for the Manhattan Project who were in Europe, looking at the Nazi installations, talking to Nazi scientists, um, talking to the Nazi engineers, trying to figure out what was happening, specifically with regards to the atomic bomb. So you have that going on, sort of running in parallel with the uh, with up with the uh, crossbow operation crossbow and operation paperclip as it later became morphed into and as we found out now it's over a thousand scientists were brought over during paperclip not just the 100 yeah. 200 or 300 they started to tell you about a thousand at least that we brought over mm. and the gradual shift of the the intelligentsia who were running our space program who were considered politically suspect they were considered to be socialists or communist fellow travelers or other th charges were brought against them. The people who actually jump-started our space program were quietly being removed or replaced or being sidelined, and the Nazis brought in into positions of, of more importance to the point where suddenly our program became a Nazi program. 
So it was it was on the expense of actually the American. Uh, I believe it was the point I'm making in one of the volumes. I think it's in volume two of the trilogy that is going to be coming out. Is that this was at the expense of Americans? You know, native-born, loyal. Who, who recall them? The the Mason faction. I don't know. If if I could go that far, yeah, because there's a lot of Masons involved in Nassau, and, yeah. and those wouldn't be loyal to Nazis or anyone; they would be patriots. Yeah, I, I would say so, and I would say that the Nazis were never patriots. Well, they were—I guess they were patriotic towards Nazism and Hitler. Well, yeah, but they weren't American patriots for sure. No. And I don't believe that they ever—they ever were. These some of the scientists maybe had no political care or, or affiliations at all, but they did exploit slave labor. They turned a blind eye to the executions and everything else. And you can say, well, they had no choice. Fine. But we still have these people now running our space program. You know, we, we have to think twice. Do we really need them that badly? Or was it just that we were afraid the Russians would get them? Mm. You know, we didn't want the Russians to have them, so we took them. It's okay to take them and then to put them in a box somewhere and say, okay, just sit there. and Here's a blackboard and some chalk. Leave us alone, right? But instead, we put them in positions of of importance and, and critical mission critical uh, uh, positions where they had, you know, they were in charge. I mean, they were firing uh, rockets out of White Sands missile base that were hitting Mexico. I mean, they were sabotaging our space effort. They were in contact with their colleagues behind the Iron Curtain. I mean, we didn't monitor their mail. We didn't monitor their communications back into Eastern Europe and Russia. With their own colleagues, with other Nazis who were operating there. Yeah, I, I, we we know the whole Galen network was dominating. It was uh, like Joseph often says uh, he was reporting directly to the president. There was no filter in between. Right. They feed the American government whatever they wanted. Sure. Galen, of course, was an obvious example, and he he didn't really give us anything very useful because he wasn't really working for us. No, he was working for Bormann for sure. Well, probably can he, we made this this critical mistake in assuming that these were our good Germans, quote-unquote. These were the good Nazis. These were the guys we could trust to, because they hated the Russians as much as we did, so they were going to work for us. Mm. It wasn't that simple. You know, a lot of these people were true believers. They hated us. They faked it for as long as they could, but they hated us. They hated our way of life. They thought we were decadent. They thought we were, you know, everything they hated. I mean, the Nazis wanted a third way. They didn't want capitalism, and they didn't want communism. They wanted something else. And the ones that escaped out of our reach, the ones who went to Latin America and to the Middle East and elsewhere, continued their activities. Mm. They were so blatantly Nazi. They continued. They were unrepentant, unapologetic Nazis. Yeah, we want you back on uh, for a separate show for that, uh, yeah. based on the Hitler le- legacy book. But uh, tracking this back to JFK and, and… Okay. As I said, Kennedy… And the military-industrial complex were at odds with each other. And the military-industrial complex at that point was being dominated by people who had Nazi sympathies and ideologies. Yeah. They, the last thing they wanted was any kind of cooperation with the Soviet Union. This was not, was not going to be allowed to happen. Obviously, they, they would shoot Kennedy just for that. Just for that alone. You know, he was he was signing a deal with Khrushchev. We were going to take our missiles out of Turkey if he took his missiles out of Cuba. The generals were up in arms against that. They did not agree with any kind of agreement with the Soviets. But Joseph, he mentioned two very important things that can connect these two dots. And that is that uh, there was a Mauser involved uh, coming from Argentina, from Perón's arsenal. There's a connection to, to the headquarters in Bariloche. 
uh, where Bormann and Hitler was placed. And then you have the, there was this guy, I think, who was, uh, uh, yeah, he was the doctor of Peron. And somehow he was, I forgot the connection to the JFK thing, but he was involved. Uh, I think he was leading maybe the laboratory work in Florida or something. Okay. So so we have evidence of potential connections here to the Nazi exile network. And I uh, uh, launched a conspiracy hypothesis to Joseph that he actually backed. Uh-huh. And that is that because every president, like Carter, the Clintons, both Clintons, also Hillary, Obama, and Eisenhower have been in Bariloche. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And uh, probably uh, they have met with Bormann at Hitler's estate. That's the conspiracy theory that people uh, talk about when it comes to these okay. s- very suspicious, under the radar travels and visitings of Bariloche. Now, the hypothesis says that if they were informed, if there were like a secret meeting with the Fourth Reich, with the Bormann Reich, maybe even with Hitler, but at least they would be informed that Hitler still lived. Right. And what if Kennedy wasn't on, because all these others are Democrats too, what if Kennedy threatened to expose this? I can't see him go along with that. Yeah. That could actually be also a reason for assassinating him, that he would talk about, no, Hitler's still alive. Sure. What do you think about that? I mean, it's mere speculation, but it's plausible, isn't it? I, I suppose it, it could be plausible. We, of course... Um, because it is connecting dots we can't deny. We can't deny that they were there, and we can't deny that Hitler escaped. Yeah. I, I just, I'm not, I'm not 100% convinced that Hitler would have stayed in South America for very long. He had so many enemies. No, but Bormann stayed there. That's the point. Right. Hitler was in the shadows. Even if he was all over in Indonesia, yeah. he was still in the shadows, right? Sure. So uh, I'm thinking, but they would know that Hitler was um, alive. It seems also that CIA helped or somehow allowed this to happen. No, I, I understand. But what we know of certain... See, this is this is why I like to go back to what we, we know for sure. What we know for sure... And this is the basis for for the speculation going on from here, is that we know for sure CIA helped a number of war criminals to escape. Mm. Not only to help them to escape, but actually used them uh, in espionage against the Soviet Union. Klaus Barbie is the most famous example. Mm. So CIA admitted, basically, that it helped Klaus Barbie, that it employed him. Uh, and I mean, CIA was based on, on the Nazi network. And those. Well, besides that, besides that, yeah. besides Galen, okay? Because Galen was never actually accused of, of killing people of war crimes. No. But Barbie was. Barbie was a notorious war criminal. Yeah. Right. And we had no problem, not only in utilizing him and using, utilizing his, his networks and his connections against the Soviets, but then we helped him to escape to Bolivia, where he then became head of the Bolivian secret police under one of their presidents. They've had many, many in the last uh, 50 years or so. But during one administration, he was actually he had a government position running their secret police. And CIA knew this. They knew where this guy was. They knew what he had done. They knew the war crimes he had committed. And he's the one verifiable link that you can say, OK, this implies a number of things. One, it implies we didn't care about the Nazi war criminal aspect of it. We didn't care that he had all these people slaughtered, that he was killing. It was all about Soviet now. It was all about the Soviets. If you just focus on the Barbie case alone, that's the, 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 the skeleton key, no pun intended, the skeleton key that opens up all these doors. 
because it reveals our our lack, uh, our ethical problem, that we simply didn't care. I mean, the ethical problem was there in Paperclip and bringing all these guys who used slave labor, who were responsible for the deaths of thousands of concentration camp prisoners. We brought these guys to the United States and put them in our employ. We had no problem. Not only that, they were working with weapons and, and yeah. just stuff where ethics come into matter. Of and, course. and we have people who we know their ethics. And then <laughs> and they wouldn't mind. And Werner, Barbie, I mean, ex- gruesome experiments, all for the purpose of power and war. Sure. <laughs> well, Strughold, we put in charge of aviation medicine. Hubertus Strughold was the guy in charge of hideous experiments on live prisoners, you know. Yeah. And we put him in charge of the aviation medicine operation in Randolph Air Force Base. In Texas, you know, and he brought in like a hundred of his best friends there. Uh, so all of these scientists, Nazis, people who had experimented on people or who had benefited from those experiments, were now working for us. Sounds to me like Bormann is uh, very influential here, right? But did we even need Bormann? Mm. Do you know what I mean? It's like we don't even need him to prove any of this. It's right there in front of us. Mm. We don't even need a conspiracy theory. It's right there. It's staring us in the face. We did this. We did this knowing full well who these people were and what they were up to. We did. We did. We hired Galen. We hired all the. We hired Barbie. We hired all these guys: Dornberger, von Braun, and a whole shopping list of other workers. And, and NATO. Don't forget NATO and the stay behind um, thing. Right. Full of Nazis. Okay. So all of all of this we we did with without a blink without blinking an eye. Mm. So I want people to understand to, to really look at that and to understand to fully grasp. Just what those things mean, because they're facts that we have at our at our fingertips that cannot be denied. There's no speculation involved. Mm. You just look at it and say, "Wow, you know, we made a pact with the devil. Mm. You know, we made a we sold our soul for security. No, oh, and still doing that. By and way. still doing that. Mm. Right, exactly. We, if we just stopped there and took a lesson from there, we wouldn't need anything else about Bormann, Hitler, or anything else. Right. If mm. we just looked right there. It's obvious what happened in the United States in the post-war period. It's just, uh, and and there was such a tremendous pro-Nazi sentiment in the United States in the 1930s that it wasn't funny. Yeah. There was a whole uh, demographic in the U.S. that found nothing wrong with the Nazis, not even with the Holocaust. Well, people didn't know, so uh, people in general would find much wrong about it back in the day if they knew. Well, let's look, let's look at 1946. Mm. Let's look at um, Richard Nixon. Okay, he's running for political office in California. And it's his first time. He's, he, he's just out of the Navy. He was in World War II. And now he's out of the Navy and he's running for political office in the United States, in California, his home state. And he's running against Helen Gahagan Douglas mm. and her husband, Melvin Douglas. The campaign that he started against the Douglases was the fact that they were Jewish. It was an anti-Semitic campaign that was taking place at a time when everybody already knew about the Holocaust. Oh, sure. Oh, sure. But there's been fascist uh, ideology in the elite in America since before the war. There was huge Nazi factions. That's what I'm saying. Mm. You're saying saying that people didn't know. But but then it sounds like… In in 1946, they already knew. Nixon knew. He already knew. And he was using the fact that the Douglases were Jewish. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The insiders knew. The, uh, uh, yeah, the players. No, not in the 40s. The Nuremberg trials were going on. Everybody knew about the Holocaust in the 40s, after the war. Yeah, I'm talking about knowing about the Nazi um, 
uh, influence of the American no, system. No, no, yeah, no, exactly. What I'm saying is that Nixon was able to exploit anti-Semitism at a point which that should have been an absolute no-no mm. because of the Holocaust, because we saw those newsreels. Yeah, because that wasn't uh, the over yet. And it didn't matter. Mm. My point is it didn't matter. Mm, okay. We had Americans who just didn't care. Mm. You know, the anti-Semitism still went down easily even after we saw the newsreels of the Holocaust. Yeah, but you see, I agree with you. If we take a look at the evidence, we don't. We can use Occam's razor, right? Yeah. But the problem is that even after we've used it, it keeps popping up weird, isolated facts that can't be denied. And, and, and what we have to do then, we have to take the intellectual responsibility of trying to connect them with hypothesis, not marrying any... A particular pet idea, of course, but yes. at least have to realize that something deeper is going on. Because like you said, you have Maury Island in 47. And that sounds a lot like, if you look at uh, Roswell too, and other cases in that time period, it sounds a lot like back then the US was shooting down uh, discs, flying discs. Right. It sounds like there was some kind of covert war going on. And it, I, I don't think they would have done that if it was outer space. I think it's much more plausible to look at the Nazi connection, uh, that they may have actually uh, start shooting on, on uh, vehicles coming from South America. And uh, then you have the, what you said about uh, Kennedy wanting to cooperate with the Russians uh, yeah. regarding UFOs, wanting to release the UFO cases. And we also have, like you said, the military industrial complex being Nazi, freaking out about that. And you also have the threat of exposing the Gala network and sure. maybe even Bormann and that Hitler is alive. I think there's a lot of different facts that can coalesce together into a big picture where we can speculate then, or, or not even speculate, it's a fact-based hypothesis that there was a huge Nazi element in deciding to, to kill JFK because he was such a threat for all the different interests. Yeah, it's... Okay, it's, it's like this. We can, we can use the facts as they come up to, specu to speculate on this, but every time we get a new fact, mm. my problem always is, I've got to go back now and redo everything, right? <laughs> um, because we come up with new ones all the time. So as long as we don't reach a conclusion, mm. we're safe. Yeah. It's the conclusions that, that worry me because people can base their conclusions on imperfect understanding of the facts because, quite frankly, we don't have all the facts. Mm. Um, we, we keep coming up with new ones. We keep discovering new ones all the time. And every time we do, we have to sit back and say, okay, maybe this theory was wrong now. We have to go back and re reinvestigate it. And the, the problem I have with that is that quite often – it distracts us from what we actually do already know. Mm. And what we do not confront, what the, the conversation in the United States that we are not having is the one that bothers me because we should be having a conversation about this. Mm. We should be having a conversation about, is it okay to employ war criminals as scientists you know, in our, in our military programs, in our weapons programs, in any program. Is it okay? Is it acceptable to do this? Was it acceptable then? Is it acceptable now? Because it talks about the ends justifying the means. Mm. And that's not a conversation we have in the United States so far, and one that we should be having. Because if we could have that conversation, it might change the political environment here. But we're not having it. We're still sort of knee-jerk working on some old paradigms. Yeah about you know what is right and what is wrong and what is expedient and what is not but we're not asking you know the basic questions 
that I think have to be asked and answered if possible. So we're, we're, we jump to a lot of conclusions based on imperfect understanding, which means we're being manipulated. Mm. If, if we come to conclusions based upon the information that kind of ekes out little by little, we are being manipulated because whoever is leaking this information is doing the manipulation, right? Yeah. So if it's all on the table, if all the pieces of the jigsaw puzzle are there, we can start building the picture. But my problem is every time I think I'm halfway finished with the puzzle, somebody dumps a whole bunch of pieces on my desk. <laughs> so it's even bigger. Every time. Oh, it's even bigger. And the picture <laughs> I thought I was working is not the same picture. And that's, that's the problem. No, but adjusting as we go, as it grows, yeah. is the, the key to decipher it. So that's just science. Sure. But, uh, but uh, okay, you say, is it okay? Is it okay for who? That's the question. Because if yes. the uh, kind of fascist ideology has taken over America already back then, or, or that faction at least is, is starting to get more power, then yes, it's okay for them. But if you are thinking about the interest of the American nation, America as a nation and as a self-interested entity, obviously it's it's a suicide. No, it is it's cancer. Yeah, it's cancer for for an autonomic nation who supposedly has won, and then all the enemy comes from inside instead. Sure, I mean that that's my problem with with paperclip. Yeah, and that's why I think we should have focused much more on that and discussed that much more openly. I mean, I worked for a company called the Bendix Corporation, which was part of the military-industrial complex back in the 1970s. I worked in their international marketing operations. Excuse me, it sounds awfully like the Permindex Corporation. No, no, not, not related. Okay. And I remember very but, – but actually, you know, Bendix did have – Bendix operated uh, something called the field service uh, or field engineering operation. I think it was down in the Washington, D.C. area, which served as a front – for moving personnel and you know military trainers and stuff into foreign countries. And well, I was the international marketing operation. It was in the 1970s. It was during Watergate. All of these scandals were being exposed. And at one point, Bendix made the front page of the New York Times because it was revealed that we were doing this, we were doing that, we were doing the other thing. And I remember people shredding documents like crazy in our office in Manhattan. You just saw that it was everywhere. It's pervasive. And we didn't have that conversation. The Bendix people... When I was researching on Holy Alliance, mm. my first book, uh, I had gone to the National Archives in Washington, D.C., and I'm looking at the captured German documents. I mean, the ones we have on microfilm, all the stuff that we captured after the war, and there's thousands and thousands of you know, pages of documents there. Yeah. And in order to get access, you have to sign in, you have to provide identification, uh, where you're employed, where you work, that sort of thing. So I did all of that, and the archivist looked at me and he said, Bendix, didn't didn't you guys get everything you needed last week? <laughs> and I'm thinking, holy crap! You know, um, I, I just didn't know what he was talking about. And evidently, Bendix had sent a team down to the archives to go through the captured Nazi documents for some reason in the 1970s when all of the scandal was taking place. And there was this big debate over whether it was ethical for any American corporation to use scientific data that had been collected by the Nazis, mm. you know, based on experiments they had done on prisoners in the camps. Was it ethical to do that? And that was a question that was never really answered. Mm -hmm. So you start putting all this together and it reveals a mindset that national security trumps everything else. National security is the most important thing and ethics, morality, democracy, our system of government, our ideals are secondary 
to national security. Yeah, that's because national security is a code word, well, yeah. buzzword for their ideology, for the fascist corporate agenda. Sure, because it covers a lot of a lot of uh, space. There was a. Uh, we probably don't remember because we were never told that there was no military industrial complex in this country before World War II. It was only after World War II that it became really an enshrined fact. And it's because of one of those expeditions towards the end of the war, we sent some famous scientists into Germany to talk to the scientists, not part of Alsos, not part of Paperclip, a separate investigation. This is what I mean when there's wheels within wheels. Mm. There was a separate group that got sent. These were scientists, cutting-edge rocket scientists, were sent to Europe to talk to the to the Nazis to investigate Nordhausen and Panamunda and the scientists who came from there, the laboratories and all the factories, all of this. The leader of that expedition came back and wrote a letter of recommendation to the military saying, we need to have what they had. We need a total government, military, industrial partnership in this country, and we need it right now. What the Nazis did as a total state concept for total war, designed for total war, we have to do in this country. It's a letter that basically created the military-industrial complex by modeling it after the, the Nazi example. Right. Pinamunda, Nordhausen, all of this came out of you know, a state-sponsored uh, uh, manufacturing scientific research operation, which in, in the last days, as you know, was under uh, General Kamler's guide. I mean, his, this is Joseph Farrell writes about him you know, a lot. Kamler was the guy who was doing this, and he was accomplishing it using slave labor. He was building Nordhaus in, in months mm. by building tunnels underneath the mountains to protect it from Allied bombing. Yeah, the Kammler Stub. Yeah. I mean, he was doing tremendous... This was the military industry. This was the model for what then we went ahead and, and created. Yeah. And we also know about the businessman plot and all that. So we know there was strong Wall Street fashion corporate powers that simp- had afford, typical example. Yeah were sympathetic to, to the Nazi cause, and we know Dulles had connections and all that. So, but, but what you're talking about is the extreme right-wing wave coming from the inside of America. But at the same time, we've been uh, trying to hunt down uh, Martin Bormann. And, okay. and, and we see another wave, and that is the real Nazis, the German Nazis uh, and other fascists uh, surviving the war, organizing themselves in different networks. Sure. And... Um, uh, we know uh, wh- why I'm getting back to Bormann because what we do know about that that we can't blame on on uh, stay behind NATO or, or the scientists in NASA or the Galen uh, spy network or the CIA uh, fascist is that uh, the connections uh, to the money that was looted because the loot went with Bormann and, and Odessa. Right. And uh, that was invested into corporations. We know many Nazi corporations, the, the, the banksters, right? The banksters, connection to Bormann and to the old German corporations that survived the war. And uh, the picture seems to be going in the direction that Bormann took this off the traditional, you know, Hitler was uh, rotting in the shadows. Uh, Die Spinne was more or less uh, becoming an anachronism, the ideological fractions. Uh, and it seems they take them more into the corporate fascism direction. Yeah, I don't. And uh, if Bormann died in the 60s, then it makes sense that in the 70s, it's become more like a separate entity, a, a, a mere cartel fascism that has cut the ties with some of the more ideological Nazi currents. What do you think about that? 
Uh, well, I don't know where to start. Um, okay. <laughs> at the end of the war, after the war was over, the uh, U.S. Congress published a document in which they identified uh, nearly 500 German corporations that had been set up, uh, subsidiaries that had been set up around the, around the world in the uh, year leading up to the end of the war. So starting around 1944, uh, perhaps the famous Maison Rouge document, a meeting whether or not that took place, we believe that it did, especially in the U.S. government at the time, and identified something like 470 or 480 mm. different corporate entities, many of them set up in the United States, but not all, all around the world where personnel, uh, assets of various kinds, engineering documents, everything had been secreted out of Europe and frittered all, scattered all over the world, North America, South America, the Middle East, Asia, everywhere. So they were making plans to preserve the best of, of German technology, German scientific advances, and their financial assets and get them out of the way of the, allied, the allies, especially after D-Day. Mm -hmm. They realized the handwriting was on the wall. They got all of that stuff out of, of Germany and preserved it out of the reach of the allies or supposedly out of the reach of the allies. When you set up all these corporations in the United States, you would think, well, now the allies have access, but they didn't actually because they played with American legal situation, corporations, and everything else, um, nobody knew, you know. And so much Nazi gold even wound up in the in the vaults of banks of New York City. So there was this this idea that we're going to move this stuff around, and no one's going to be able to take it, especially not the Soviets, and we're going to get it out of their reach. Well, a lot of the the gold, as we know, wound up in Switzerland, uh, but not all. A lot of it wound up in Spain. A lot of it wound up in Portugal. A lot of it wound up in Asia. Uh, we had U-boat traffic, U-boats uh, the size of tankers were going back and forth between Europe and uh, and Asia, transporting all of this material as well, including scientific documents and personnel. Um, we captured one U-boat that had an entire V-2 rocket and an entire Messerschmitt broken down in crates on board that, that particular submarine, as well as tons of uranium. So we captured that uh, in, in, I think, I guess it was May, May or June of 1945. So, you know, we knew this was going on. Mm. We knew that, that there was this elaborate network that was being set up because if you do this, if you move the gold, you move the technical stuff, you move the personnel, who's controlling that? Who's in charge of that? Who, from whom are they taking their orders, right? There has to be an, an apparatus. Yeah, someone has to be in charge. Somebody yeah. has to be in charge. There has to be an apparatus of some kind. Yeah. That's controlling the flow of this of this information, the flow of the money in particular. Mm. So that's where you have to look. You have to look at who benefits from all of this. These corporations were not going to sit there and and operate on their own. You know, uh, Thiessen or or Krupp or the other corporations were not going to sit there and just independently do their own thing. That was not the idea. The idea was this was for the greater good of Germany. This was to help Germany rebuild after the war, to help in reconstruction, but also to maintain their ideology, which they did expertly. That gold was used, for instance, uh, some of the gold in Switzerland was used to finance revolutionary movements in North Africa and uh, Palestinian liberation movements in, in, the, in the Middle East. This gold was there to help train commandos and to help uh, build rocket programs in Egypt and so on and so forth. And in South America as well, building jets, developing new jet aircraft. One of the Horton brothers went down there to develop flying wing aircraft. Uh, there was atomic research going on, as as we know, in Bariloche and places like that in Argentina. Mm -hmm. So all of this was taking place with German money and German scientists. Mm -hmm. What did that mean? 
that meant that it was for a purpose. They were taking orders from someone. They were cooperating with someone. It wasn't a bunch of guys running around like madmen. When there was such a great organization that was being run by Otto Skorzeny, yeah. by Hans Ulrich Rudel, by people like that who were very visible, running all over the world, making sure that everybody was marching in the same direction. Yeah, we, we want you on for a show about you know sure. only this uh, Hitler legacy thing. But but uh, I, I guess what we're getting at here to conclude then, or not to conclude, you know, actually, <laughs> really. but uh, I mean, if we could find out who's controlling who, that would be a sort of conclusion. And I guess that's what uh, the effort has to be about. Because you have, at the one hand, a scenario, you have these two extreme right-wing waves coalescing, the the one from the outside of America and the one from the inside. And the question is, who is the national security apparatus having the Excel Nazis uh, and the corporations you know, as slaves for them. That's that's a plausible uh, scenario. And that Hitler and Bormann uh, are allowed to, you know, survive. Or is Bormann actually the spider in the shadow controlling the U.S. national security or even, even the military-industrial complex? Now, it's not important which one is the, the true thing here. What's important is in this context that if JFK would be a threat, no matter what, to both of them. Oh, absolutely. To not just threaten their interests, but also to threaten that connection that uh, there is this, uh, you know, he's from the people uh, and uh, American patriot uh, kind of point of view, whereas they have this more geopolitical, ideological agreement. So he would be a threat to them no matter who was in control of who. Kennedy was a threat just because he was Kennedy. I mean, Mm -hmm. Kennedy was a walking threat to certain special interests in the United States and abroad. Kennedy was conceived as a threat by the the very same people. Uh, We have contingents of them today who who see Kennedy as a traitor. They see him as a communist. They see him as all sorts of evil things that he was not, but they see him from that point of view. That's the perspective. And when you talk about this, it's... it's not that you have an entire American apparatus which is a slave to a Bormann or to a, a Nazi international, the, the way that, that Farrell describes it. Mm. I would say that most Americans that I know, that I've met in the course of my research on all different sides of political spectrum, they don't consider themselves that way. They consider themselves to be patriotic Americans mm. who just happen to be neo-Nazis or Klansmen or something, you know, mm. they see themselves as doing, quote-unquote, the right thing. It's just that their their attitudes are such that they're poisonous. So you have you can have the Ku Klux Klan people saying that they're the real Americans. Everybody that's trying to lay claim to what being a real American is, that's part of the problem. We're not really defining America very well. So you have this, you have a mentality that doesn't need a Borman to tell them what to do. They know what they're supposed to do. Do you know what I mean? Like the Trump movement today. Yeah, yeah, something like that. I mean, they don't need they don't need to have a Nazi saying them. Okay, you have to follow the Third Reich, or you have to follow. You have to read Mein Kampf. They would probably be revolt completely against it. Mm. Yet they're buying into the same program without realizing it. You know, they they are they they're sympathetic to these ideas. They're sympathetic to the Brexit vote, for instance, right? Yeah. Uh, well, actually, so am I, but for completely different reasons. For different reasons, mm-hmm. right. Mm-hmm. But the, the idea that it's an anti-immigration vote and an anti-European vote mm-hmm. has resonance with people in this country who want the same thing. Yeah. You know, if, if there was a Brexit for the United States, they would take it. They, we just can't leave it. We, <laughs> are, we are the problem. Yeah, but that's not why 
Brexit didn't win because of that. What, what the sure. corporate media do is that they take that faction of, of uh, Brexiters because, of course, mm. Nazis will always support something that benefits the nation state. So you take that, and but you will always find kooks in, in all uh, camps. Sure. But they, they zoom in on it and they make that a scapegoat, not mentioning, of course, the, the social aspect here no, that no. millions are without work. And, I agree. You know, I agree 100%. But it's because of the this emphasis, mm. the wrong, the emphasis on immigration, for instance. Yeah, it's because of that emphasis that it resonated with people in this country. It's what they, what they resonated with. It's it's the it's the this concept that it was anti-immigration, which is what Trump said in Scotland, right? Mm. Ridiculously, you know, when Scotland was against Brexit, but yeah, he, he had no <laughs> he, clue, <laughs> he had no clue whatsoever, you know. But oh, you're making your country independent. It's it's this it's the same mentality. Yes, we focused on all the wrong things when it came to the Brexit vote. I mean, most Americans don't have a clue what that was all about anyway. I used to work in Europe. I mean, I used to have offices in in the UK. I mean, I know what they were dealing with with the European Union just to sell an electrical product of any kind, even a a plastic faceplate, which had no moving parts and no electricity in it at all. It had to have all sorts of approvals and go through all sorts of processes before it could be sold. I mean, I ran into that. You know, it was just, it was a nightmare, an obvious nightmare. Mm. So I understand that aspect, but we emphasize the immigration aspect because here in this country, that's what we're focused on, right? right? So we interpreted the entire Brexit thing from our own narrow political biases and prejudices, and it just emphasized what those prejudices were. But, but there is a connection because there is on social unrest, people are, are displeased uh, all over the world now. Oh. And, and, uh, and they can go in different directions, like they can go in a Trump direction, they can go in a Sanders direction, they can go in a libertarian. Yep. So, so yeah, um, there, is, there is that that can be said to be some kind of connection. But yeah. hey, Peter, uh, we have ranted on for this topic very long now. I think we should take a break. Probably it's been about two hours. Yeah. I think, yeah, we probably should take a break yeah because yeah. my mind is fried right now on nazis <laughs> yeah <laughs> plus we've been very focused on something different oh yeah but we have like about an hour more so if we spend like a little over an hour and see how that goes uh, how, how much time say do an hour or two tops okay so when we come back immediately after we will be having a deeper conversation in a way and we will talk on your insights into the other weird stuff with JFK because you know the material about JFK so well by heart. And you do have enough material for us to, to, to chat on. Sure. So this will be like something else than what we just did. Okay. So um, we're going to talk a little more about this subject and then call it a day. Okay, fine, fine. Great. Great. Dear listener, I'm afraid I have some bad news for you. As members of our website and people following our Facebook page already knows, there is no part two to this show today, despite what we said at the end there. To make a long story short, our headquarters were attacked by a freak blitz Uh, The same that killed hundreds of reindeer, if you read that news. And in the process, we lost not only equipment, but also some shows. And uh, one of them was the second part of this talk. So, uh, 
Only if you can access the Akasha Chronicles will you be able to hear that delightful completion that I won't even begin to sum up for you now as to avoid getting depressed. I would apologize, but force majeure is out of our hands, and besides, I think it pains me more than you. But hey, you can always read uh, Lavenda's books as well as tuning into our future shows as I give my solemn oath that unless the next lightning attack strikes me and removes me from this world, we shall continue this path we are tracking down in depth with several excellent experts guests leaving no stone unturned in the process. The advantage of signing up to our website, by the way, is that you will get access to all our shows months and months before they are publicly released online, as well as a few other perks like bonus shows and also our forum talks where me and Bella address questions and comments from listeners. When you sign up, it's important to know that unless you drop us a mail telling us you signed up and donated, it may take forever for us to grant you access, since our resources are stretched and we can't manually check between these two lists all the time, and we haven't a technical solution for automatizing it. If you think we should do better, we agree. But it boils down to funds, so feel free to contribute so that we can get more professional and streamlined in our services. Finally, we'll end this show with some wisdom from JFK himself. And imagine that once upon a time a president could actually be apt. No wonder he was taken out. Anyway, the following are quotes of his. The problems of the world cannot possibly be solved by skeptics or cynics, whose horizons are limited by the obvious realities. We need men who can dream of things that never were. The goal of education is the advancement of knowledge and the dissemination of truth. The greater our knowledge increases the more our ignorance unfolds. Things do not happen. Things are made to happen. Those who make peaceful revolution impossible will make violent revolution inevitable. If we cannot now end our differences, at least we can help make the world safe for diversity. As we express our gratitude, we must never forget that the highest appreciation is not to utter words, but to live by them. That's it for today. Thank you for following us yet again. Your host tonight has been Al. And until next time... I bid you sincere regards from me and my team. Be seeing you.
who is number one?